morning. So as you can hear, or as you heard, uh, it's a really light topic this morning. <laughs> Jesus is better than jihad. Uh, to start, uh, what I want to do, we're just going to start, of course, with the Word of God in Philippians uh, chapter 1. So if you could turn with me there, please. The bulletin says, verses 20 and 21, I'm going to kind of call an audible, I'm going to start at verse 12. And Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yet, or yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does Jesus have to do with jihad? You do not hear anyone talking about him in the news when accounts are given for the various attacks that are made on any different part of the world. But for us this morning, Jesus has everything to do, frankly, with everything. But in this topic, because Jesus is our supreme value, because Jesus is the treasure of our lives, He has everything to do with jihad and how we think of it. There are a couple of verses in conjunction with this one that have really become anchors for me, not only as I think through this topic, but in general, for my life spiritually. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. How did you receive Christ? How did I receive Christ? Helpless. Bringing nothing to the table. Paul says in Colossians, as you have received Christ, so walk in Him. And that's great. So I can keep being helpless and go to Him and ask for help. That is a very different picture from what Islam teaches. Just a little bit earlier, and this is where we're going to see, in, hopefully this morning, my goal is to go from that to this next verse. What does this mean for our mission? 
Colossians chapter 1, right at the end, verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Not only can you be helpless, but he gives you the strength to fulfill the mission that he's called you to. And that's amazing. So, we're going to do a lot of education this morning. I'm going I'm to go through a lot of details and a lot of information, but I don't want you to leave with information. I want you to leave excited and encouraged. Let's pray. God, please help us this morning. As we broach a topic that can be uh, difficult, that can be uh, divisive, We don't want to leave this morning just knowing more. God, we want to leave this morning knowing you more and loving you more. So as we continue through uh, the rest of this morning, I pray that you can bring us to the point where with Paul we can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. We trust you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me for one sec. Can everybody see that okay? I have a couple sources uh, to share with you this morning. Uh, I've had other sources just to, to weigh through this topic, but I want you to know that, uh, hey, you can do this too, right? So uh, I have a Koran with me here this morning. Uh, these were with my Bible in my bag on the way here, and it never caught fire. The Koran is just a book. It's not the Word of God. This is an extremely helpful source. If you're going to learn about what Muslims believe, what Islam is about, buy yourself a Koran and read it. One of the other sources I have is uh, a book by Ergun Amemek Kaner, uh, I'm sorry, Ergun and Amin, Amir Kaner, called Unveiling Islam. Uh, this is a book I got years ago at uh, New England Bible College as a textbook for one of my classes. And this is extremely helpful. There are others. Uh, the third book that we've drawn uh, a lot of good information from that I think is extremely helpful to summarize a lot of information for what we're going to talk about today is a book called Answering Islam by Nab Nabil Qureshi. Uh, great book. I read it in two days, and it was really cool. Uh, so uh, get the books, get them all, and enjoy them. I'm not being paid to say that. So uh, here is what we need to do this morning. I told you that, uh, or Mark said that this is something that started at youth group. We were talking, uh, coming up to Easter, talking about the resurrection and what the church, what the response of the church was after the resurrection and how people were willing to die for this guy, Jesus. A man whose death was was attempted to be covered up by the authorities of the day. It wasn't covered up. In fact, the leading explanation for uh, Muslims for the, the death of Jesus, or lack thereof, uh, and even other people, is that someone replaced his body. You know who started it? The Pharisees. And it's recorded in Scripture. So 
we need to educate ourselves. We need to learn. And that was my goal at youth group. We were talking about what it's like, what it means to be someone who's willing to give their life up for Jesus. And I said, almost in passing, a Christian who dies for the sake of Jesus is not at all the same as a Muslim who blows themselves up. One of the teenagers says, so what is the difference? Good question. <laughs> so I gave a good, like it's just a brief answer, but I went home that night and I was up very late putting together as much as I could uh, of a comparison between the scriptures in the Quran and the Bible that helped to, to really form a good understanding of what the Quran teaches uh, and what the Bible teaches about martyrdom and suffering and what, what's the deal here, okay? So that's what I've done. Uh, I have one copy, two copies of that scripture parallel. If this were youth group, I would throw it out and let you guys all fight for it. Um, but it's just going to sit right over there in the chair for now. I have one here. If you're interested in getting one, uh, it's just something that, that was extremely helpful for me as I pulled this stuff together. I can send it to you. But our printer downstairs does not like printing or copying. So that's uh, <laughs> just seems to be the way that it goes. Uh, but that's okay. We're going to do a lot of historical review. We're going to talk about Islam. We're going to talk about Christianity. We're going to talk about the history of the scriptures of the Quran and the Bible. Uh, and then we're going to jump into Philippians chapter 1. So, um, what helps us to understand Islam and religion in general in our world today. Uh, so I think the first slide, the next slide will show you some information. Uh, is that the one? I don't know. Well, we'll get there. So culture nowadays, Western culture, uh, is actually sort of a, uh, a little bit of a view of the world in general, of humanity and the way they've treated God, frankly. Uh, Western culture thinks that good and perfect religion is religion that is as far separated from its roots as possible. So we can blank that for now because we'll get there eventually. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all, and I think we could probably see this with Christianity pretty clearly, all have very liberal strains. Would you agree with me? the world seems to believe that the virtuous thing to do with religion is to take its core teachings and pull out love and pull out grace and mercy and happiness and good things and put those together into something good and fun and enjoyable and easy to swallow for everybody. That's just irresponsible. What we should do is to look at what is originally taught. What, what does the Bible actually say? What does the Quran actually say? What is Judaism? We, we can't treat religion or really anything that way. But that's what's happened in our Western world. And really, this is part of human nature. Okay? That's how humanity treats God in rebellion against God. We ignore the teachings that are necessary for our salvation. And to clarify, none of them are in the Quran. They're all in the Bible. 
So, we're going to compare and contrast Scripture. Uh, Today's world, nowadays, doesn't care what's actually in the book. Uh, If you believe in original teachings of Christianity and orthodoxy, you're intolerant, right? Isn't that how we're seen? Uh, If anybody believes those, the, the... Orthodox teachings of a religion, oftentimes they're seen as intolerant. I had someone tell me that, or, or ask, doesn't the Koran teach love? Doesn't the Bible teach love? Doesn't Judaism teach love? If it's all from God, why can't we all just enjoy love? Well, the Koran doesn't just say things about love. It also says things about killing Christians and other people. We can't be that irresponsible with these, uh, these topics. But we do have to be careful. I don't know if you guys remember last year or two years ago, there was a bus somewhere in Africa, it might have been Kenya, that was attacked by Muslim extremists. Uh, what happened on that bus is those extremists, those terrorists, told everybody on the bus the Christians have to go to one side or the back or something like that. Uh, But there were other Muslims on the bus. Do you remember what happened? The Muslims refused to leave. There were Muslims on the bus that refused to leave and they said, we're going to stay here with the Christians. It's all of us or none of us. Two people died. This does not fit into the narrative and the things that we hear in our world today about Islam. There is a real tension. There's a real... It's just a difficult spot because most of the things that you hear out there in the world and in the media talk about either the love and and happiness part or the terrorism part. There is actually an overlap. Not all Muslims are violent. That's just the reality of the situation. There was, another, there was another instance not long ago where something similar happened. There was a group of, uh, of Christians, I'll just say a tribe, I don't remember if they were Christians or not, but they were attacked by terrorists or, or extremists. They fleed into a village. The imam in that village sheltered them. He brought people into his home and he put people into the mosque to shelter them from death. This is one of the things we just have to understand about our world today. And one thing I want to point out is that this actually creates some really good opportunity for us if we understand it properly. I also want to make sure that we're encouraged by Scripture, and that's why we'll end up in Philippians chapter 1. I want us to get to the point, Lord willing, where you can leave here today and agree with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to leave and go get dead for Jesus. So, uh, the next slide. Islam uh, and the uh, world around it, context of its beginnings. Around 610, 630 AD is when Islam began. Uh, this is the later part of the life of Muhammad. Uh, you, you know that AD 0 to 330, or 333 was the life of Jesus, right? So how long after that was Muhammad alive? About 600 years. 
the Arab world was pretty much polytheistic. There were Bedouin tribes that just traveled around the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, and Christianity and Judaism had actually moved out into those areas uh, and were influencing the area. So you have this polytheism, you have versions, strains of Islam and Christianity that are in there as well, and this is the world that Muhammad grew up in. There was worship in Mecca, it existed back then, had nothing to do with Islam in 600 AD, but Mecca at the time, uh, the Kaaba, this black cube that you see in Mecca, was a place of worship for over 300 gods, about 360. Uh, Muhammad's tribe was the keeper, the, the overseers of this place. Okay, so he was kind of an important figure. Um, he was kind of shunned later on, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Nestorian Christianity. There's this dude named Nestorius that about 400 years ago, or before, I'm sorry, 400 years after Christ, uh, he was a little bit of a source of controversy in the church. He didn't believe that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He didn't accept that Jesus was God bodily in bodily form on earth. And he, and what resulted after him, his followers, Nestorianism, really influenced the Arabian Peninsula. So, as we're going to look at in a minute, when we look at Islam and what Muhammad taught about who Jesus was, you're going to see the influence of Nestorianism. That Jesus is not God. And by no means is Mary venerable. Okay, we don't believe that, but this was a reality of the time. Nestorian Christianity was uh, deemed heretical by the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. This is one of several times that the church had to really clarify teaching about the deity of Christ. Uh, and this, this particular strain is what uh, was influencing Muhammad. He was an orphan. Uh, his mom died before, not before he was born, because that would be weird, uh, right around when he was born. And his father died shortly thereafter. He was raised by an uncle who was a merchant. He was a trader. He traveled all over the place and, uh, and traded um, so that's, that's kind of the, the world that he grew up in. Um, next, after the kind of the, the cultural influences, what does the Quran teach? About 610 was the first revelation that Muhammad had. We're going to put revelation in quotes because we know it wasn't actually revelation from God. Uh, but supposedly the archangel Gabriel appeared to him in a cave. He would often sit in a cave and meditate as a part of his religious observance. Apparently, supposedly, uh, Abriel, Gabriel appeared to him and told him, write these words down. These are the words of God. So he did. They weren't actually the words. Of, I, I'm going to say that a lot. What he believed was not actually true. Okay? Uh, a lot of disclaimers there. Uh, the Quran is believed to be the most holy and authoritative book in Islam. Uh, it is their Bible but they say it can only be properly understood as it's correctly interpreted by an imam. The best way that I could describe this is, you know, for us, contextually, we could remember sort of what the Roman Catholic Church did with the Bible. We are the ones who are the keepers of the word. We're the ones who are responsible for teaching you what it means. This is what the Quran is like for Muslims. It's 
kind of how it's treated. Imams are the ones who are responsible for teaching it. Imams are the ones who are responsible for interpreting it. But Muslims, they have access to it. They use it. They read it. They, they recite verses. They pray with them. But there's not a whole lot of in-depth study. Nabil Qureshi, that we're going to find out later, chose at one point to begin studying his Quran. And he found to his surprise that Islam was not at all what he was taught it was. He accepted Christ and uh, has since died from cancer, I believe. But uh, he gave us some really good resources uh, as a result of his study. There are a couple other works called Hadith and Sunnah. Uh, the Hadith, it's not necessarily just a written book, but there are writings. The Hadith is the life of Muhammad uh, and sayings as narrated by his companions. Uh, the Sunnah is practices of Muhammad. Okay, it's like, like what he did and other things. Uh, hadith and Sunnah and even the Quran to some degree, there's not really a strong universal disagreement or agreement about how they should be used, interpreted, and kind of intersect with the Quran. So there's disagreement in that community about exactly what their purpose, not purpose, but use is. Um, there, there are multiple versions of all of them. There are the, those sayings, hadith, there are a group of people, the companions of Muhammad that followed him, that observed him, that were with him, and each of those guys made accounts of his life. Think of the Gospels. Okay? The Gospels are part of our uh, canon of Scripture. Hadith is almost like an account of the life of Muhammad. Okay, Kind of how we would think of the Gospels. What was the goal then of Muhammad uh, after he received what he believed was Scripture, was the revelation from God. Monotheism. That's what, that's what he wanted to bring into the world. This was not a monotheistic culture. It was polytheistic. So his teachings were not received well. He wanted to unite the Arab world in this monotheism. Uh, but here's the difference between the East and the West. We may see things differently, but by and large in our communities, God and religion are not deeply tied into everything we do. God is not deeply tied into economy. God is not deeply tied into family life and all that. It's just not the way that the Western world works. For us, it's different. But for the person who's checking out groceries at Hannaford, that's probably not the case. The East is very different. God, religion, that's all connected to everything they do. So when Muhammad introduces monotheism into a polytheistic world, he's really shaking things up. So there's not just religious outcomes. There are economic outcomes, political outcomes, uh, that all, everything just kind of gelled together. Muhammad believed that the, or taught that the Quran was the only uh, authoritative word of God. His word for God was Allah. It was actually the word for God that all of the people in that area used because it just means God. Okay? Allah does not mean, I want to clarify something, 
the moon god. That's a popular misconception in Christian circles. Allah was the moon god. That's wrong. The moon god was a god named Hubal. Hubal was the kind of like patron god of uh, Islam, or not Islam, uh, Muhammad's tribe. Allah in that area meant God, the God. There are Christians today in that area of the world that use the word Allah for Yahweh. And they're right in doing so. Because Allah just means God. The difference is what did Muhammad teach about God? I talked about this guy at Hannaford checking out groceries. Might believe in God. And he'll say, I believe in God. He uses the term God, but he's not talking about Yahweh. He's talking about his conception of God. It was much the same for Muhammad. Muhammad taught that God or Allah was the same God as the God of uh, Abraham and Ishmael. We would remember that Abraham, the promise that he received from God was that God would make from his family a great nation. And from that nation, he would bless the entire earth. Remember? That, was, that promise would come to fruition through who? Ultimately, Jesus. Yes. Immediately in that context, Isaac. I will give you a son. Okay? And that son was Isaac. Muhammad taught that that son was Ishmael. Muhammad taught that Ishmael was the one through whom the promise God made to Abraham would be fulfilled. Very different, right? Immediately in, uh, in history, there is this divide. We don't believe the same. Uh, Judaism, Judaism is not the same. But this is what Muhammad taught. Do you see the, the influence of Christianity here? You have a pagan area of the world. You have polytheism. And Muhammad, who grew up in it, now comes onto the scene and says, I know the God of Abraham. And his promise is going to be, be fulfilled through Ishmael. He was, he was knowledgeable. He understood quite a bit. He was wrong. But anyway, we'll talk about that more. Uh, he taught that Jesus was a prophet of, uh, of Allah in the same line as Abraham, as Moses, and even Muhammad himself. Muhammad did not shy away from calling himself a prophet of God. Uh, but Jesus was, according to Muhammad, a prophet, just a prophet, just a man, not God in human form. His goal was to, and this is what he said he received from Allah, bring the world back to true worship and submission to God, to Allah. He taught that Judaism and Christianity had perverted the teachings of the Bible that we got it all wrong, and that everything was wrong, even Jesus. Uh, everything we know about Jesus was wrong. Uh, and he sought to fix that. Interesting thing, as I was preparing this, uh, what does God call himself when Moses says, who shall I say sent me when I go to the Israelites? What does God say? I am. We correctly understand that to be I am. Am. I have no beginning, no end. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who will fulfill my promises. I was reading that this spring sometime, 
And just for a moment, it really struck me. I am. I just am. When Moses was afraid to go to Egypt to talk to Pharaoh and and be the agent of God bringing freedom to his people, he was scared to go. Who shall I say sent me? They're not going to believe me. They live in a world where there's tons of other gods. There's Osiris. He's got a head for a dog for a head. And not, like, there's this all other stuff that's going on. They're not going to believe that you sent me. And God says, I am. They're not. That, just in that moment, struck me. God is. Allah simply isn't. It's not a contest. It's not, it's not a race to Godhood to find who's going to win. God's not competing with Allah. Allah is not sitting in the parking lot thinking, who am I going to get? You know, what am I going to do? Allah does not exist. The Allah of the Quran. At best, Allah, the way that Muhammad taught, of him is how Satan and his demons chose to deceive Muhammad. But there's some really great truth to the fact that God, our God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, Jesus, simply is. And nothing else is. There is no such thing as Allah. There is no such thing as Osiris. There's no such thing as whatever other God anyone might believe in, there is one God. And it's Yahweh. It's going to be helpful for us to remember this morning. So next, uh, what happened after Muhammad introduced monotheism to the Arab world? Mecca was the center of worship in the area. Uh, Mecca was where the Kaaba is and was, and Muhammad's tribe was the keeper of the Kaaba, the keepers of the Kaaba, uh, and there was worship there of over 300 gods. As I said before, politics, economy, and religion are very tied together. So when Muhammad comes to Mecca, stays in Mecca, and says, Allah is the one and only God, none of these other gods exist True worship is worship of Allah. He's shaking up the economy. He's shaking up the politics. He's shaking up the leadership of everybody around him, and they don't like it. Someone tried to assassinate him. They drove him out of Mecca. That was about 615 A.D. There were some tribes around Medina, roughly 13 years later, who didn't have much leadership, and they invited Muhammad to come to Medina to resolve disputes and to be a part of their, uh, their lives. And so he gladly went. Uh, he had, there were several battles along the way, and he killed some people. But he made it to Medina, Medina, and he became a leader where he gained about 10,000 followers. After that, spending some time there, he went back to Mecca. This is a pretty simplified timeline. There were a few other things around there, but by and large, he went from Mecca to Medina and eventually back to Mecca again. He overthrew Mecca. 
There weren't many casualties except for the tribe of Jewish people uh, that he got into a tiff with on the way and he beheaded them. Um, but there's some, you know, people out there who like to call attention to the fact that there wasn't much bloodshed when he went to Mecca to overthrow it. Uh, not many people died. There were only a couple of people beheaded at the time. But he went back to Mecca around 630 A.D. He smashed the idols in the Kaaba, declaring Allah to be the one and only God. One of the idols that he smashed was the idol, the, the god of his own tribe, Hubal, the moon god. After that, Islam spread. This was pretty late in his life. There were other battles. Overall, Muhammad and his companions took part in 80 or 90 battles and uh, spread Islam throughout the Arabian Peninsula. Nowadays, it is the second largest religion in the world. Second to Christianity. Uh, Pew Research Center, the Pew Research Center in 2010, said that Islam was 23% of the world population and is projected to become 30% by 2050. At the same time, Christianity was about 31% and wasn't projected to change much at all by 2050. World population will grow, adherence to both religions will grow, but growth of Islam will exceed the rate the power they projected would exceed the rate of growth in the world as population grew. That would make Islam the fastest growing religion in the world and equal to, if not perhaps exceeding Christianity in the near future by the time my son is thinking about what it's like to have grandchildren. Some amazing statistics kind of provides for us some truth that a lot can be done through a lie. A lot can be accomplished with lies. Next, we're going to talk about Christianity. How did this book come about? What's this book all about? We all know that Christianity had its start when Christ came to earth and lived, died about 33 A.D., the New Testament books were all written within 40 to 65 years after the death of Christ. We call this the Bible. It is the canon of Scripture. Not canon, but complete work, authoritative work. That's what the canon of Scripture is. Okay? There can be a canon of anything. This is the canon of Scripture, of, of God's Word. What's significant about this? How did the canon of Scripture come about? I had a guy at work tell me, come on. You can't believe that so many people wrote this and didn't mess something up. I said, yeah, I can. I can, actually. Because I believe in a God who's extremely, eternally, perfectly, supernaturally powerful over anything that happens on earth. And he can guide people to write his perfect word exactly the way that he desired it to be. There are four questions, four criteria that I kind of summarized for us to help understand how early Christians within the first 400 years or so decided that this is the Word of God. They didn't make it. They didn't create it. They didn't write it in 400 A.D. 
it existed, and they said, this is it. These are the four questions. Was the author an apostle or had a close connection with an apostle? If the answer is yes, then that book is that much closer to becoming part of the biblical canon. Number two, is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? The answer is yes. Good. Another check mark. Verse, or number three, did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? And I'm going to try to mention this later, but not only are we saying, does this book contain consistent doctrine and orthodoxy of teaching compared to what Jesus said, but also the Old Testament from many, many, many years before. Okay? Number four, did the book bear evidence of high, a higher moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? I want to really highlight that uh, this book, these councils that made these decisions, did not do so willy-nilly. They didn't, like I said, they didn't create the Bible. They declared the Bible to be the Word of God because the Holy Spirit worked to preserve it through history. They recognized the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. They weren't one guy in a cave that said, this is the Word of God. It was councils that wrestled and talked and reviewed and read and studied, and they said, this is what agrees with what we know of what Yahweh has revealed to us. They were subservient to the work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the Bible, the Old Testament and the New, has one consistent theme. A holy God continually extends grace and mercy to his rebellious children and ultimately, independently, lovingly fulfills his promise to solve man's rebellion through their redemption and recreation. Not just of their fallen nature, but of their bodies and the entire created world. In Christ, God perfectly satisfies both his justice and his mercy toward us, not compromising his nature in any way. There is no way that the Koran could pass this test, especially in consideration with what we see in Scripture. If Muhammad believed that this book was the corrupted word of God, what he wrote was in such opposition to what's here there's just no chance that it matches up. Next. Charts. I don't do charts naturally. It's just not part of how I work. Okay, uh, Charts and lists, that is my wife's strong point. If you need one, well, don't go to her. Um, this graphic up here uh, is it's called textual or bibliographical criticism. There's an academic test that is separate from Christianity that affirms the authority of Scripture. Go figure. That's amazing. There are works in history that are not contested, that are not argued about how valid they are, about how authoritative they are, the way that they make account for uh, the things that are written in them, Homer's Iliad, Herodotus' his, Herodotus's history, that's a tongue twister, Caesar, uh, the Gallic Wars, there's lots of other ones, but these are some highlights that show us not only does the Bible have way fewer years between the original events and the writings, 
But there's way more, 5,795 manuscripts that support each other and those original events compared to all these other uncontested works that pale in comparison to what Scripture has. How's that for God preserving His Word? That's pretty amazing. This isn't to discredit these other works, but this is to say the Bible passes this test with flying colors and nothing else really comes close. That's awesome. The Koran, it's hard for people to find, for academics to find original manuscripts. And if there are, if there are what are they called? Uh, mosques. If there are mosques in places that have manuscripts, it's actually hard for, for uh, academics to get those. Huh. That's, those are some great numbers right there. Textual criticism says that the more sources there are, closer to the original events, the more valid, the more accurate those sources are in what they say. So if you were to ask me, I'd say that the, uh, the Bible is awfully accurate. Praise God for that. We're going to briefly review uh, the... Scriptures of the Quran and the Bible. Again, I have this for you if you want it. It's like four pages of kind of a comparison between the Quran and the Bible. Uh, the, the title of this morning's sermon is Jesus is Better Than Jihad. If you were to ask Nabil Qureshi, uh, we're going to hear from him in a second, but uh, if you were to ask him and some other Muslims who have accepted Christ, you're going to find out that they discovered that, the is, that Islam and the Quran actually teaches Violence, you can't get away from it. Let me read some for you. It's okay, I can do this, and I'm not going to get struck by lightning because the Quran is just a book. It's not the Word of God. Chapters in the Quran are called a surah. So if I say surah, I mean chapter. There's like, I think there's almost like 200 of them. Surah 5, ready? This is about Jesus. Christ, the Son of Mary, was no more than a messenger. Many were the messengers that passed away before him. Surah 5, 116. Behold, Allah will say, O Jesus, the son of Mary, did you say to men, take me and my mother for two gods besides Allah? He will say, this is Jesus responding to Allah, glory to you. Never could I say what I had no right to say. Had I said such a thing, you would have indeed known it. This is the this is what Muhammad is teaching about Jesus. Claiming to give more accurate accounts of what Jesus said. Here's what the Bible says. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 10, 30. I don't think you can get more direct than John 10.30. I and the Father are one. The words of Jesus. What else does the Quran say? Did Jesus die on the cross? Surah chapter 4. Well, they said, he's talking about Christians, 
They said, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. But they killed him not, nor crucified him. Only a likeness of that was shown to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts, with no knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. For a surety they killed him not. Nay, Allah raised him up unto himself. And Allah is exalted in power wise. And there is none of the people of the book. This people of the book is a term used for Christians. Uh, none of the people of the book but must believe in him before his death, and on the day of judgment, he will be a witness against them. They're saying, Jesus didn't die on the cross. Someone else died. It was all a ruse. Christians are fooled, and they'll find out someday on the day of judgment that we're right and they're wrong. We'll see. We know how that's going to turn out. What does the Bible say? Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. John 12. Now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Colossians 1, 19. Through him, uh, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus came to earth to die. Islam teaches that's not true. But the more reliable source and the word of God says something different. How are Muslims justified? How are Muslims forgiven? How do they attain paradise? Surah 23. Those whose good deeds weigh heavily in the scales shall triumph, but those whose deeds are light shall forfeit their souls and abide in hell forever. Uh, there are others, uh, Surah 9, Do you pretend that he who gives a drink to the pilgrims and pays a visit to the sacred mosque is as worthy as a man who believes in God and the last day and fights for his cause? When we see phrases like fighting for Allah's cause or striving, going to war, we're talking about jihad. In one verse, we're told in, in the Quran that you must do good deeds and weigh heavily in the scales. In another, we say those pale in comparison to violence and fighting for jihad, for, for Allah. These are not equal by God, Allah. God does not guide the wrongdoers. Those that have embraced the faith and left their homes and fought for God's cause, jihad, with their wealth and with their persons are held in higher regard by God. It is they who shall triumph. Their Lord has promised them mercy upon himself, from himself. His pleasure and gardens of eternal bliss where they shall dwell forever. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us very different. For by grace you have been saved, right? Through faith, not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Time and time again through the Koran, we actually see that jihad, works, obedience, is the way that Allah teaches is the right way to go. Throughout Scripture, we have God continually 
being merciful and gracious to His children. These are very, very different pictures. I might make it hard for Jake to go through the, the next slides, but uh, with regard to Jesus, we say the Quran says He's not God. The Bible says He's, very, he's equal with God. Justification, the Quran says that good deeds and obedience, jihad, are the way to go. The Bible says that by grace we are saved, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by good works, but for good works. As far as jihad and, and the Christian mission are compared, the Great Commission for us, the Quran, it's characterized by violence. The Bible, as Christians, what we see is that our mission is characterized by works, service, preaching the gospel, doing good deeds as a result of the good we've received from our Creator. Persecution is a natural outcome. Not go out and get dead, but as you are going, you will be persecuted. We're told to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, not to find them and destroy them wherever we will find them. Next, there's a, just a brief video by Nabil Qureshi about his research into violence and jihad and what he discovered as he looked into it. Uh, so Nabil, I said earlier, Nabil was uh, a man who lived uh, as a Muslim in America through up to his teen years and decided at one point after being challenged by a friend that he would look into what the Quran actually taught. He had been devoted to the Quran as a source for recitation and prayer and he was devoted to the imam's teaching in his life and his parents, but never did he really sit down and read it to figure out what it said, nor did he ever really look at the history and the context uh, with which it, in which it was written. So, is jihad about violence or peace? Yes, both. Okay, because some, Christian, or some uh, Muslims will say it's about striving uh, personally in your faith with Allah. And they would be correct because they believe a version of Islam that's not uh, adhering to what the Quran originally taught. But what does Nabil Qureshi say? Initially, mm. when I encountered uh, the violence in Islam, I said, well, this can't be the true Islam. And I, for years, would push back, arguing, no, this hadith here is unreliable. For example, Muhammad says in Sahih Muslim that he has come to expel the Jews and Christians from the Arabian Peninsula and will not leave any but Muslims. That doesn't sound like the Muhammad I knew. So I said, well, that can't be a reliable tradition. And then another tradition from Sahih Bukhari, which says, I have been ordered to fight people until they testify that there is no God but Allah. And only then will their lives and their property be saved from me. And this is from the most reliable collection of hadith, Sahih Bukhari. And so I said, no, that can't be reliable either. Mm. And as you continue, you find Muhammad beheading multiple hundreds of men at the same time. Um, you see him uh, distributing those men's wives and children into slavery. You see him torturing people for money. You see him... Um, all these atrocities within Muhammad's life, mm. uh, and not always in defensive battles by any means, um, offensively as well. And so, you know, after trying to dismiss many of these traditions, I said, well, let me, let me piece together what's going on here, because if I dismiss all of these violent traditions, then I am basically dismissing the foundations of Islam. This is where I get my picture of Muhammad from. Mm. So looking just at the sources, what is the story? How do I reconstruct what Muhammad's life is like? And what you find when you do that 
Because there certainly are peaceful passages in the Quran. We mm. can't ignore that. Mm. Um, like chapter 2, verse 256 of the Quran, which says there is no compulsion in religion. Mm. And that, those are often the ones that are quoted in those response are often to, the ones, to yeah. people. Chapter 109, which says, you know, those of you who disbelieve, believe whatever you want and let us believe what we want. Mm. Fairly peaceful. Mm. Uh, one of the ones that's, uh, just I, I can't say this without laughing a bit, but so abused is chapter 5, verse 32 of the Quran, which says, um, if you kill one person, it's as if you kill all of mankind. And if you, say, if you save a life, it's as if you save all of mankind. Mm. When you start understanding the context, though, you realize that this is not the ultimate message of Islam. For example, that one verse, chapter mm. 5, verse 32 of the Quran, says the first part of that verse is, it was told told to the Jews, if right. you kill one person, it's as if you kill all mankind, right. if you save life, if you saw, as if you save all mankind. And we do. We find that in mm. uh, Tractate Sanhedrin of the Babylonian Talmud. I see. Uh, it's, not in the Quran, it's not a teaching for Muslims. The next verse is the teaching for Muslims, ah, right. uh, which says, if anyone creates mischief in the land or strives against Allah or his messenger, crucify him or kill him. Right. A very different message. Exactly. Okay. So you start getting the context. And what you find is in the first 13 years of Muhammad's uh, prophetic career, um, he lives a peaceful life. He has about 100 followers by the end of that time, not that mm. many. Um, certainly doesn't have a fighting force. Most of these people are of humble means. Um, and he, he doesn't fight during that time. But then he's given rule over a city. An entire city gives him uh, the, the right to be arbiter. Mm. From that moment until his death, approximately nine to ten years, he personally participates in or deputizes 86 battles. Right. So that's an average of nine plus battles a year, and they culminate in intensity until the moment he dies. Chapter 9 of the Quran is the last major chapter of the Quran to have been composed, and it is the most expansively violent. This is the one mm. that starts off by saying this is a disavowal of all the treaties we have with polytheists. Chapter 9, verse 5, slay the infidels wherever you find them, lay siege to them, take them captive. Chapter 9, verse 29, fight the Jews and Christians until they pay you the poll tax right. and they feel subdued. Why? Chapter 9, verse 33, Islam has been made to prevail over every religion. So, I mean, chapter 9 is the most violent. It's the culmination of the Islamic message. It's, what, it's the marching orders that Muhammad leaves Muslims with, which is why when he dies, Muslims conquer one-third of the known world within 150 years. Right. These were the messages. By message. the sword. By, well, it's, it's, it's complex. Once again, mm. they would tell places, if you do not convert, then you have the option to pay a tax. And if you don't pay that tax, then this we will fight the, you. the jizya. Exactly. Yeah. So it was, it was expanding into territory. The first option mm. people were given was conversion. The second option was paying a tax. And if that didn't happen, then it was, then it right. was by the sword. And do, do you basically see this as effectively the modus operandi of groups like ISIS today? Well, this has been the classical understanding of Islam up until the fall of the Ottoman Empire. No Muslim really ever had qualms with it. It's, it's what it was, and this mm. is the, mess, the means through which Allah had given Muslims dominance around the world. And it wasn't until Muslims had to, had to as a, a culture, flip the script and start playing the defensive, the, the victim mm. Mm. Uh, card, which they hadn't done before. Mm. Uh, so for example, the Crusades, many Muslims will point to the Crusades now and say, this is another example of, of Christian uh, sort of uh, superiority complex and trying to keep mm. us down and oppressing us. The, the Crusades were never even discussed in Islamic literature. There was no Muslim or Arabic word for Crusades until Christians came up with one in the right. 19th century. Okay. Um, it just wasn't a part of the Islamic mentality mm. until the Ottoman Empire fell, the Islamic world started losing its power, and then these discussions started happening. And that's why you don't hear the phrase, Islam is a religion of peace, until the 20th century. That simply wasn't 
a phrase. It was never said. It was never yeah. thought. That wasn't the way Muslims had thought up until that time. Uh, that was a summary, essentially, of uh, Nabil Qureshi giving information about the book that he wrote, Answering Jihad. Good book. Very, uh, it's brief, but it's also very informative. And it goes into topics like, uh, what about violence in the Bible? What about the Crusades? Um, we are going to do a very light skimming of those topics today. Uh, he gets into much more in-depth uh, conversation. So what about violence in the Bible? Um, number one, violence in the Bible uh, is not always condoned by God. You find violence in the Bible that is a part of historical narratives, that is an accounting of things that happened. It is not necessarily something that was either commanded or condoned by God. Uh, we have very different types of literature found in the Bible than we do in the Quran. In the Bible, we have historical narratives and prophecy and poetry and all this other stuff. Uh, the Quran has wisdom, direct revelation to Muhammad. Uh, it is not considered historical narrative, although it does talk about some things that happened. It's all in the form of Muhammad's teaching as received from Allah. Is there violence in the Bible? Yes. Uh, an honest skeptic will bring that up to you. How do you answer that question? You can't until you rewind a little bit and start talking about God. Do you believe that God is just? Yes or no? Well, if you don't believe that God is just, then there's not much of a conversation there. Here's the beauty, though. Here's what we do see in the Old Testament. Time and time again, God calls His people to faith and trust in Him and, and desires to be merciful and gracious and is so time and time again. So we see in the violence of the Bible justice, wrath, being brought upon other nations. Deuteronomy talks to uh, the Israelites and saying, don't think it's because of you. Okay, that you're so amazing that I've sent you to defeat these, these lands. It's because their iniquity is not yet complete, and then I will send you in. I am bringing you in to judge these nations that have turned away from me. It's not because you're amazing and wonderful. You are my chosen people, but you're, I'm bringing, bringing about my promises to all of mankind through you. So the violence that we see in the Bible is not a command for followers of God to find and slay and bring under, you know, subdue people who don't follow him. The violence in the Bible is, is the wrath and judgment of God upon sinful nations. But what we do find time and time again is God saying things like, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Trust me. Love Love me. I love you. Yahweh doesn't say stuff like that. Yahweh says, obey me. Yes, I'm sorry. See, I'm just... Thank you, Tim. Allah does not say things like that. Yahweh does. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Yahweh is the one who says, I will die for you. Yahweh is the one who says, I forgive you. I will create in you a clean heart. I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I will work both 
uh, in you both to will and to work for my good pleasure. I will help you. I will uphold you. I will bring you to myself. I will pray for you when you don't know how. I will be yours and you will be mine. That is your God. The burden of proof is on Allah. He's not showing up. Yahweh is the one who is faithful to his promises. Yahweh is the one who is loving and pouring himself into his children and calling us to love him back. Allah doesn't do that. That is the difference. That's where we can get to Philippians chapter 1 and say with Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. What's the purpose of your suffering in the world today? It's not to bring people into submission. It's to be an example of Christ. What happened? Look at, look at Philippians chapter 1. I appreciate your patience in the amount of time it took to get here, but we're not going to spend long here. I have two major points. Verse 12, the first thing that Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul's in prison. If I were in prison, I'd be writing to Libby and you guys and be like, guys, the food here stinks. Could, could you drop some McDonald's by? Paul's first thing to say about being in prison was that this has happened to advance the gospel. His concern is the advancing of the gospel. So that, in verse 13, this is the cool part. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He goes on to say that although there are some who are speaking the word out of rivalry, there are those now then who are speaking it out of love. What does adversity do to a community? What happened right after the planes hit the Twin Towers? What happened to our country? Unity. What happens to you when adversity is felt privately and you feel alone? We withdraw. Adversity, suffering that is felt alone, causes us to push away from people because we feel they don't understand. Shared adversity in community unites. And the same is true for the Christian church. And we've been told that it will happen. We will be persecuted. The question is, will we unite? With his help, we will. Paul was first and foremost concerned with the gospel. And that should be our mission as well. And if we understand that adversity that is shared creates unity, then why, how could we not obey the Scripture and weep with those who weep 
mourn with those who mourn, and bear burdens of those in our communities for the purpose of them seeing and savoring all that Jesus is. Because we've done the same. Next. Verse 19, I know that through your prayers and help of the Spirit, Jesus Christ will turn for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. God has called Christians to suffer. He hasn't called you, like I said before, to go and get dead. He's called you to live out as an example of Christ who suffered and died. It's a natural part of the mission that we have been given from Christ to proclaim the gospel. The world hates the idea of sin and need of forgiveness. When I was at work the other day, we were, you know, there's a guy there who has some Catholic background. And we we're having a conversation about, he, he said, tell me, who has never died? And I very quickly and enthusiastically said, Jesus. And he said, nope, you're wrong. He died, didn't he? And then he rose again. I was surprised. The back of my head was like, he just admitted Jesus rose again. Um, but he was right. Jesus died. And he rose again. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, you're right. Jesus died and he rose again to forgive us for our sins and make us right with God. And then he just kind of dismissed that. And he says, fine, now mention someone who's never died. There's two. There's uh, uh, Elijah and Enoch who were taken up by God into heaven. And I said, there's those guys. And he goes, huh. And he turned around and the conversation was over. And then later on, One of the other guys that I work with, very jokingly, probably went a little further than I would have, but he had another comment just in passing where he was like, well, what about Jesus? And this guy was said, when are you going to leave him out of this? That's as much persecution as I've undergone, I think, in my entire life, okay? So this is what American life is like for us. We don't really encounter much persecution. But the world hates Jesus. They don't want him to be a part of the picture. But he has to be. All those who desire to live a life uh, obedient to Jesus are going to suffer. It's just going to happen. So, should we be willing to die? Yes. Should we seek death? No. Okay? What does it mean then to be willing to die? Are our lives cheap? Should we be able to just toss them away? They're not cheap, but they're not nearly worth what we'll receive one day when Jesus comes again and brings us back to hit to him. My life is not appraised, not valued by what I can gain or lose here. My life is valued by what I have in Christ. So is yours. Jim Elliot, you've heard this before, said he is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I think this was years ago, and I have not been able to find it, but I think John Piper said once upon a time, if the worst thing that can be done to you is the best thing that could happen to you, you have nothing to fear. You're not being called to jihad, but you're being called, we are being called to hold this life in its true worth compared to what we have in all-surpassing value of Jesus. I find myself more afraid of what people will think of me than what they'll do to me. But when I think of whether it's worth it to give my life up for Jesus, I don't see the difference between what people think of me and what someone could do to me. Willingness to give up what's valuable to me is the same as being willing to come under ridicule for Facebook comments, as long as I'm not being an idiot on Facebook. Willingness to die for my faith is the same as being willing to come under the ridicule of of family and friends. But what does God tell me? He will help. Time and time again. We see in Scripture, and if you want this, I will definitely give it to you, but I have it here. that We see God's promises to give us help. We see God's promises to speak through us. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It is not you who speak, this, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This is amazing. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We are assured by our Heavenly Father that He will help when the time comes that we're to give an account for what we believe. And all the more will He help if the time comes that your life will be required of you. This is heavy stuff. But this is what we've been called to. So, we can and we will, by the help of God and His Spirit, join together in the mission we've been given to go and make disciples. Willing to give ourselves over, willing to give our lives for the sake of making Christ known because value, our value, the value of the cashier at Hannaford is found not in what he can do for God, not what we can do for God or Allah or whoever, but it's found in Jesus Christ alone. To live is Christ. And as Christ's, to die is gain. So together, let us all go into the world and proclaim to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, come to Jesus
the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, and the friend of sinners. God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. We are amazed at what we have received in Christ. Solidify that for us, Lord, and let us be unified in our mission. Thank you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.